Section 3 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 5, February 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 5, February 1896. Section 3 the little brown mole by clarice irene klingen three years ago while spending a few weeks in new york i was invited to the home of paul fancourt the famous naval architect whose family residence is on the shore of the hudson and but a short distance from the city i found my old college friend whom i had not seen for several years busily engaged with a set of drawings but notwithstanding his enthusiasm in his work he looked worn, haggard, and unhappy. On the afternoon of the last day of my visit, I pinned him down to a serious talk, in the course of which I begged him not to undermine his health by too close application to his favorite pursuit. With a flitting smile, he exclaimed, Why, it's all that keeps me alive. After a moment's thought, he added, Of late years I have been weighed down by the memory of a dark spot in my life, an unwritten chapter until at times it seems as though I must make a confidant of someone. Upon my assurance that I would be a most willing listener, he related the following history. Twelve years ago, he said, when I was twenty-three, I met a singularly handsome girl, a debutante enjoying the triumphs of her first season. It does not speak well for the good sense of either of us, but I am compelled to admit that within six weeks we had met loved, married, quarreled, and separated. The trouble between us was incompatibility of temper. This sounds insignificant, but there was certainly an enormous lot of incompatibility and much temper. We were very unhappy, at least I was. We both said things that could never be forgiven or forgotten. Before the honeymoon was over, I left my wife in this house, with a corps of servants and a handsome balance at my bankers, and started on a trip around the world. I was absent five years. During that time there was no communication between my wife and myself, although I frequently heard of her through correspondence with friends. Her conduct during my absence was most exemplary. She remained in the place where I left her, but gave up society. She studied art, making much progress, and I was informed that her pictures and illustrations were selling for extravagant sums. She seemed to have struck a popular art note and was playing upon it. These bits of information neither entertained nor amused me. Indeed, I thought myself beyond the point where anything she might say or do could interest me. Not that I had learned to care for anyone else, but simply because our short association had utterly destroyed my early boyish affection. Before I had been absent a year, her very image seemed effaced from my memory. On my arrival in New York, however, I was irritated to learn that not a penny of the money I had left at her disposal had been touched. I believed she had done this for the purpose of annoying me and causing me to look mean in the eyes of the world. She, meanwhile, earning her livelihood by her art. Being abundantly able, I wished to make a settlement upon her. But as she absolutely refused to talk with a lawyer I sent to her, 
I was compelled, repugnant as the idea was, to seek a personal interview. To this end, I telegraphed Mrs. Fancourt on the third morning after my arrival, asking if she would receive me at five o'clock that afternoon on an urgent business matter. In less than an hour the reply reached me. I tore open the envelope and read the one word which comprised the answer, standing alone, naked of punctuation, on the yellow sheet. Come. That means war to the knife, I thought, tossing the paper on my dressing-table. No words wasted. As I made preparations for the trip, I caught myself glancing at the letter now and then. Come. After all, it had a certain charm of its own, that word. Like all affirmative expressions, it possessed drawing power. The more I looked at it, the more alluring it appeared. Then I examined the signature. It was simply Leila. Really, it was almost coaxing. Arriving in the village just at nightfall, I hurried toward the house which had been the scene of so much unhappiness. To my surprise, it gleamed with lights, as if for some festivity. As I sprang up the steps and laid my hand upon the bell, the door was suddenly opened by a maidservant whose face was strange to me. "'Where is Madame Mrs. Fancourt?' I asked. "'In the drawing-room, sir,' she answered, and then discreetly disappeared. "'As you know, the drawing-room in this house is connected with the front hall by an arch, hung with portieres. These were drawn. Pushing them aside, I entered, and suddenly found myself in the warm glow of a big wood-fire which had been lighted in the fireplace. This crackling, cheery blaze and the waning light of the October day were all that lighted the room. There, in the center, she stood, clad in an exquisite gown of palest yellow, and, as I moved towards her, I saw two hands, instead of one, outstretched. The next moment I was holding them both, the cool, soft fingers clinging to mine while she whispered, Paul. For a few seconds we looked at each other silently, breathlessly. Then, obeying that irresistible law that causes the needle to be drawn towards the magnet, I bent and kissed her. All this took place as I have described it, but it would be impossible for me to account for the feelings that actuated me. I know only that all my bitterness towards my wife, all my dislike for her, in one revulsion of mind changed to the most passionate admiration and affection from the instant her lips touched mine. Dazed, astonished, I could not find voice to speak, but Leela chatted quite naturally as she led me to a big armchair on one side of the fireplace, while she threw herself on a low divan piled with cushions on the other side, putting out a slim little yellow-slippered foot to the blaze. It's such a sorry day that I ordered this big fire, so your home would seem pleasant after your long absence, said she, in her mellow, vibrating voice. Then, looking at me across the fire, with a winning smile, she added, Besides, it was so good of you to come out to see me. I looked at her, still amazed. I now saw that she was much changed. Perhaps she was not so handsome as she had been in her early womanhood but what she had gained more than made up for that which she had lost. She was thinner. Her face had grown ethereal, luminous, spiritual. Surely she had suffered. This fiery, savage-tempered girl, 
for the hardness and selfishness had melted away from her face and left it softened lovely and changefully brilliant at first i thought her eyes were darker but i soon made up my mind that it was because the pupils were so dilated then i knew she too was under the tension of strong nervous excitement her manner however gave no suggestion of this she talked rapidly and almost continually saying apparently whatever first came into her mind i suppose it seems frightfully dull to be here again the merry-go-round has stopped and here you are at the place from which you started the curtain has dropped has it not dear you've been everywhere and seen so much and now everything is at a standstill and you feel a bit giddy from sudden lack of motion it's much the same with me only my merry-go-round isn't so merry and not so far around i've just rotated between here and the new york art schools and lived very quietly but i believe i'm doing all the talking would you like to say anything just a little word well i won't let you for i know two things you are tired and no man feels like talking before he has dined so not a word until after dinner in the dining-room another surprise awaited me a miniature banquet had been prepared evidently in my honor for i was the only guest the room was adorned with palms and vines and the table was gracefully decorated with roses and ferns among which gleamed the silver and china over all was the soft almost moonlight effect of wax tapers the only objection i could make to anything was the flowers on the table which partially concealed the face which i was now hungry to look upon it was what i believe is termed the celtic type of beauty quite common among anglo-saxons dark brown hair approaching black gray eyes and a complexion of creamy fairness we were long at dinner talking of everything but the subject i came to introduce i became reminiscent of travel she was easily entertained and was herself brilliant serious and amusing in turn as we walked back to the drawing-room at the close of the meal i whispered like a lover leela i came to scoff but i remain to pray can you forget the past she promptly put her hand over my mouth the past must remain a sealed book she commanded and so it did in the hour that followed spent before the open fire i inadvertently referred more than once to the forbidden subject but each time i was stopped by a warning gesture and an impressive remember not a word we begin life anew from this hour with every moment my desire for a reconciliation grew stronger but when at length she yielded it was only on two conditions first that i would never refer to the past and second that our future be consecrated by a ceremony of marriage i readily agreed to the first condition and took the solemn vow required but at the second stipulation i laughed but she said very seriously that she could be reconciled to me under no other circumstances so yielding to her whim i ordered a carriage and we drove to the house of an elderly clergyman in the village whom we well knew who on hearing our story willingly agreed to repeat the ceremony and lightly almost laughingly the words of five years before were once more said then followed five months of the most absolute happiness that was ever accorded it seemed to me to human beings it was an atmosphere of love 
joy, and ineffable content. The beauty of my wife, her changed nature, and fine intuitions grew upon me day by day. There never was, I am sure, a woman like her. I lived in her love, and yet I lost it forever on account of a thing of such infinitesimal importance that it drives me nearly mad to think of it. This object was no more nor less than a little brown mole on my wife's neck, just below her left ear. It came about in the following manner. One day, having returned from the city on an earlier train than I had anticipated, I went to Leela's room and found her lying on a couch, fast asleep, her hands clasped behind her head, and one slippered foot crossed over the other. In fact, the posture in which de Maillet's famous duchess was wont to dream true. Knowing she was a sound sleeper, it occurred to me to softly kiss the little brown mole to which I have just referred, something I had not thought of since the days of our first short honeymoon so long ago. Carefully, I pushed aside the masses of tumbled hair that lay across her soft white throat and bent over her. No, the other side? But surely, what did it mean? Her round neck of infantile whiteness and smoothness lay before me, but the little beauty spot was missing, nor was there the slightest evidence that it had ever existed. I went downstairs and smoked a pipe on the piazza to think over this mystery, but the longer I thought, the less I understood it. That evening I said to my wife, Sweetheart, where is the little brown mole that was just under your left ear? For a moment she looked at me. Then she said softly, but with a certain power in her voice, Have you forgotten your vow? I stared a moment, then recalled my promise never to allude to the past. Somehow it impressed me differently now than when I had first taken it. To be sure, I laughingly begged Leela's pardon, assuring her there would be no more lapses from rectitude in that direction. But from that moment a strange restlessness took possession of me. I felt something impending. In the morning I would wake with a singular sense of oppression, which when traced to its cause always arrived at the same starting point, the little brown mole which should have been on my wife's soft white throat, but was not. It was about this time that I noticed that there was not a likeness of Leela in the whole house. When I went away there were many scattered about, watercolor sketches, paintings in oil, photographs and etchings, for Leela had always been proud of her beauty. Now not one remained. Even the oil painting that had been finished as companion to mine just after our first marriage had been removed, though mine hung in its accustomed place. I was about to call attention to this fact and ask the reason when I remembered that this circumstance also belonged to the past, concerning which I had promised never to question and was silent. My mind had now become so perturbed that it continually demanded something on which to focus its attention. For this reason I turned my thoughts to my favorite pursuit, naval architecture, which had been neglected for months. Before my trip abroad I had left in a sandalwood box in the library some unfinished plans, which I now decided to complete. But as the box was missing and the servants knew nothing of its whereabouts, I climbed to the attic to look for it myself. After an hour spent in a fruitless search I was turning to leave when my eye fell upon a large picture lying on its face among a heap of papers in the darkest corner. I knew the frame. 
and the first glance at the picture told me I had happened on what I was not looking for, but had wished for, a portrait of my wife. It was the one that had been painted directly after our marriage. Dragging it from its hiding place, I carried it to the long, low window, and, propping it up against an old dressing table in a position that would catch a good light, I carefully wiped off the dust and cobwebs and stood back to view it. As I looked I became as a man stricken with death. The face on the canvas was not the face of the woman I loved and worshipped as my wife. How long I stood benumbed by this discovery I do not know. After the first shock lessened and my senses began to act, I fell to studying the portrait and comparing it with its living double. That there was a remarkable resemblance between the two it is unnecessary to say, but at the same time there were so many points of difference that I was amazed that I could have been so easily deceived. There was, in fact, what might be termed a family resemblance, such as often exists between two sisters, who, when together, are not thought to be remarkably alike, but when seen apart are often mistaken for one another. In the picture the ears were larger, the mouth smaller, the chin less decided, the forehead a trifle narrower, and the eyebrows heavier. While I stood revolving in my mind this terrible mystery, I heard the sound of hurried footsteps. My wife had returned from her afternoon walk. I went downstairs, arriving in the lower hall just as she entered. She came sweeping in with her usual vivacity, her eyes bright, a faint rose tint on her cheeks, enveloped in that atmosphere of exhilaration that was like a breath of ozone, and which gave her a charm above ordinary women. Something in my appearance must have startled her, for she paused at sight of me and waited for me to approach. I went to her, kissed her, and then, clasping her glove wrists in mine, looked steadfastly at her and said, Dear, where is Leela? In a moment her brilliant color faded, her eyes fell, then suddenly, wrenching herself free from me, she moved unsteadily towards the staircase, pausing with her hand on the banister only long enough to say, You have broken your pledge. Leave me alone until tomorrow. Then you shall know everything. Then I heard the sound of her garments on the stairs, presently the closing of her door, and the key turning in the lock. All that night I restlessly walked the floor of my room, trying to bring order out of the chaos of my mind. Fear, love, trust, suspicion, all by turns possessed me, but in the end my belief in the goodness of the woman I loved conquered. At early dawn I knocked at my wife's door. There was no response. I tried the knob. It yielded, and I entered. There was a dim light in the room, but she was gone. On her dressing-table was a letter which told me all. The first few paragraphs are sacred to me alone. I will begin her letter where she commenced her own history. My name, she wrote, is Olive Berkeley. I was born in England, the only child of a retired naval officer. My father had a moderate fortune, and for eighteen years I lived a quiet, carefree life in a Devonshire country house. During my nineteenth year my father's income was so much reduced by unlucky investments that we moved to London that I might study art with a view to supporting myself. Two years later my father, who was my only near relative, died suddenly, leaving me less than a hundred pounds clear of debt. 
by this time however i felt confident of success in my profession and thinking america offered a better field than england for a self-supporting woman i came to new york here i took a studio with the intention of giving lessons in drawing and painting but the pupils did not come my pictures failed to catch the popular fancy my money was soon spent overwork and worry culminated in illness and i soon found myself deeply in debt without a friend in the world to whom i could apply for aid in this extremity i accepted the first work i could obtain a situation as companion to mrs paul fancourt this woman whose violent temper and moody disposition had driven her husband to foreign countries before the honeymoon was over was the terror of her household she i believe took a dislike to me from the first on account of a singular resemblance between us and also because she saw i was her equal by birth and education at any rate she delighted in humiliating me in every way as well as in making my duties as laborious as possible i hated to touch a morsel of food under her roof but my unmet obligations made it impossible for me to resign my position as i did not know where else i could obtain remunerative work and i had a horror of debt but though i outwardly kept my temper a volcano of hurt pride and misery burned within me one wednesday night i went to my room more than usually worn and enraged by mrs fancourt's caprices it had been one of her stormiest days culminating in the discharge of her butler and the bitterest invectives against the other servants i had just retired and had hardly fallen asleep when the bell over my head rang violently springing up i slipped on a dressing-gown and went downstairs mrs fancourt was sitting in an easy-chair reading a novel the hands of the clock on the mantel pointed to eleven without looking at me she motioned to a table not three yards away saying insolently bring me that paper-knife never i answered passionately with this she rose and came towards me striking me full in the face with the paper-covered novel in her hand then it was as if all my pent-up self-control snapped i sprang toward her seized her by the shoulders shook her until my strength was spent and flung her from me she fell heavily striking her temple upon a sharp corner of the fender where she lay quite still i hurried forward and spoke to her there was no response and i lifted her face to the firelight to my horror i found that she was dead and what was to become of me i had killed her in a fit of passion i could not deny though it was by accident how could i prove my innocence i was without friends or money when my debts were brought to light might not theft and the fear of discovery be advanced as the motive for the crime if not the scaffold i saw at least prison bars before me instinctively looking around for something to wrap about me i caught up a satin-lined garment of mrs fancourt and slipping it on rang the bell wishing to spare the one who answered it a shock i met the housekeeper in the hall what is it mrs fancourt asked the woman very respectfully evidently mistaking me for her mistress in that instant there flashed into my half-crazed brain the wild idea that i might personify mrs fancourt for the time being the death of the poor unknown english girl could be of little moment while the announcement of the death of mrs fancourt would cause much more comment with this idea i told the housekeeper to come to me in half an hour 
then with the courage of desperation i clothed the dead body in one of my dresses arrayed myself in one of mrs fancourt's gowns darkened my eyebrows to simulate hers and let my hair fall about my face in confusion meantime i determined to insure myself against detection by the three remaining servants by getting rid of them at once a plan rendered all the easier by the fact that it simply carried out mrs fancourt's mood of the day in fact it had been her custom to vent her feelings by discharging her entire corps of servants in a body and with no warning and their comings and goings caused not the slightest comment the scheme succeeded to perfection the other servants terrified by the catastrophe gladly left the house at once especially as each was provided with two weeks wages in advance mrs fancourt's only sister and near relative was travelling in europe her husband was at the antipodes of course there was a coroner's inquest but as nothing was proven to the contrary a verdict of death by accident was brought in the whole matter passed off very quietly few outside the household knew that mrs fancourt had an english companion or that she had died those who did thought it very kind of mrs fancourt to give the companion burial in her own family lot then i fell sick and for weeks raved with brain fever when i recovered i was but the ghost of my former self and friends of the dead woman who came to call after my recovery said they never would have known me as soon as i was able i devoted myself to art which now by a freak of fortune brought me large returns i not only paid the debts of my deceased english companion but supported myself comfortably without touching the fun left at the disposal of mrs fancourt by her husband that i never could have done i should have been happy but for the grief i felt at having though unwittingly caused the death of another there has never been a moment when i would not have willingly yielded up my life could it have restored that of my victim the fact that i usurped her name and position was due to a momentary cowardice there was only one thing belonging to the dead woman that i coveted and that was her husband and not even him until that night of nights when he came into my monotonous life and kissed me with that quiet air of ownership and dominion i had dreaded your coming fearing you above all others would discover the fraud and when your message reached me and on the impulse of the moment i sent that fatal answer come it had hardly left my hand before i regretted it for at once it flashed upon me how impossible it would be to account for all or to conceal all but from the instant that you stood before me i was conquered by another feeling than that of dread i loved you love and not fear held me to the lie and it was my respect for you and for myself that made me insist upon that marriage ceremony i always knew that should you discover the deceit i should leave you not because i felt guilty of crime for of that i have always felt morally innocent but because i won and married you under false pretenses i cannot bear to lose one iota of your respect and remain where i can miss it here paul fancourt closed his story i heard the high wind lashing the trees darkness was growing dense the early november evening was closing in it was seven years ago to-night that i first met her in this house went on fancourt surely you have taken measures to find her i have done everything under heaven once in a while i grow desperate and try everything over again but it is useless and yet 
I have a feeling that she will return, and that if she does, it will be to this house. So I am just waiting here. Waiting. Well, John, a lady to see you, sir, said the butler at the door. Who is she? I don't know, sir. She wouldn't give any name. Fancourt rose and went towards the door, but before he reached it, his visitor pushed past the servant and stood, a tall, veiled figure in black, clutching nervously at the drapery at the door. Then she threw back her veil. I caught a glimpse of a marvelous face and hair sprinkled with snow about the temples, of two dark, beautiful eyes fixed on Paul. I... I couldn't stay away any longer, she whispered huskily. Fancourt rushed towards her with an inarticulate cry. Then, with hands outstretched, my wife, he gasped, I... But what followed I shall never know. For the next moment I had retreated into the library, where for half an hour I sat diligently reading a book held upside down. What I do know, however, is this. All that I have told happened three years ago, and up to the present time Paul Fancourt's third experiment in matrimony has proved a triumphant success. End of Section 3 Recording by Narrator J.